you all have a good afternoon? Anybody have an afternoon nap? Raise your hand. Am I jealous? Ooh. Um, my friend Glenn Dean is uh, here tonight with Bobby. How many of you know this gentleman from years ago? So uh, I asked Glenn to give a word of greeting and uh, uh, introduction to the material. My wife Linda and I came down from Ontario where we were ministering in 1996 for the Grace Fellowship training, and Glenn and Bobby were at the same training event, and we've been friends ever since. So what did you think? This is a surprise. Uh, yes, I do recognize uh, a lot of you still. Uh, I am uh, glad to be back here tonight and be part of this. Uh, as John said, uh, we first met in 96, and uh, since that time, uh, I have been involved in uh, counseling uh, ever since. And over the years, I have seen uh, these truths that we're going to be learning uh, tonight and throughout uh, the next several weeks uh, have really made a difference in people's lives. When we can truly uh, take hold of the truth of the fact that we were uh, our our co-death, burial, and resurrection with Christ has really set us free from of what ails humans, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I do uh, look forward to uh, uh, listening to these truths again uh, fresh uh, after several years. And I know that all of us will be blessed because of it. And I am really uh, pleased to be able to be here tonight. And I uh, brought a friend, Tim Marshall, who's looking forward to... Uh, hearing all of this also, and I do believe that we as a church, as a body of Christ, uh, will benefit greatly when we understand who we are in Christ and how that has set us free and that we can live according to his ways and not according to the ways of the world. So with that, uh, I turn it over to John to say, uh, I'm glad you're here tonight. Well, tonight we're going to give an introduction to our our seminar. Can you hear me all right? Testing one, two, three. Uno, dos, tres. Siete, ocho. I forget <laughs> Spanish. But uh, you see in your notes that we're going to do an introduction tonight. We're actually going to get into the conference material per se next week. So if you didn't get the notebook, that's all right. We had this in mind that we wouldn't know exactly how many of you would be here so we'll be having enough notebooks so that you'll have a, a copy of that if you'd like to, to get one next time. Um, but we'd like to, to give uh, this introduction. And if you have your, your Bibles handy, we're going to start with what I'm going to call Precious Promises. And I think we do have a PowerPoint for this, don't we, fellas? Okay, I don't think I have one. Um, but the Scripture says that God has given us exceedingly great and precious promises. And when uh, Glenn was sharing about the training we received and the privilege we've had to share this message, especially in a counseling setting, I'm so glad that when God leads someone to us for counseling that is hurting with an addiction or depression or anxiety or some life-besetting problem, that we can point them to the promises of God's Word and know that it's not just wishful thinking, but it's a promise that they can get a hold of and see God's transformational power in their lives. So some of these uh, verses are familiar to you, but just to kind of get our momentum going, I'd like for you to look at John 10, verse 10 with me. Uh, 
Great promise. And here's where we get kind of a, a summary of this whole discipleship counseling model. There's a, a sinister agenda, the beginning of the verse mentions, but then a, a glorious provision that the second half of the verse mentions. The thief comes to do what? To steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's the bad news. Let me just ask you this evening, don't you see that in our culture, in our, in our um, society, that the enemy is coming to steal people's blessings, to, to rob them of the gospel, to destroy families and testimonies and ministries? Yes, the enemy is active. But aren't you glad that we can talk about the victorious Christian life because our Lord says that he has come that we might have what? Life. And what kind of life? Life more abundantly. So this morning we looked at what it meant to be in Christ. We looked at 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30. It is of God that we are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So when we unpack the gifts of what it means to be in Christ, we discover that he's not only given us life after physical death, but life today, a life more abundant, a life victorious, because that's also based on his grace through faith. As we begin this series tonight, I wonder if I could ask you this question. Is there someone in your life, a family member, a friend, a neighbor, a co-worker, that you believe needs to experience more of Christ's victory? Victory over their problems, over mental problems, emotional problems, relational conflicts, things that are holding them back. Can I see a hand? I think everybody could raise their hand. We need this revelation for ourselves, but also for others. And what I appreciate so much about the way that we're going to to go through this, this model of discipleship counseling is that this is designed to be very transferable. You don't need to have one person articulate the message. You're going to be learning to, to use a toolkit where you can learn uh, an approach to share the good news of the abundant life in such a way that you can help that person you're concerned about move from where they are to where God wants them to be by grace through faith. Years ago, a pastor from Texas phoned me and he said, John, I have a, a master's degree from, uh, he mentioned a, a popular Christian university. I've been in ministry for a number of years. And although I have a lot of theories about helping people, when I sit down with someone who is hurting, who is stuck with a problem, I'm just not clear on how to help them move from that problem to, to the provision of victory that Christ has for them. Reminds me of a, a teacher I heard <clears throat> named Dr. Larry Crabb. Some of you may have come across his books on biblical counseling. I was up in Toronto, Canada, where we used to live, hearing him uh, give a lecture. And he described coming right out of graduate school, having all this theoretical knowledge about schools of behavior and trying to understand people's problems and how to what he was trying to do was spoil the Egyptians you know how the Israelites got gifts from the Egyptians and then in the Exodus they left with with those riches and what Larry Crabb wanted to do is kind of glean some insights from secular psychology but to be intentionally biblical well after a couple of decades I think he's confided in his readers that there wasn't as much treasure um in, in the secular field of thought than he expected. But he mentioned that as a, a young intern with his Ph.D. training fresh in his mind, all these concepts, all these theories, he was sitting across the desk from a woman who was just so overwhelmed by her problems that she was just spilling out all these issues and difficulties. And Larry was trying to process all of his theoretical training. And, and he was sitting on a swivel chair 
And he didn't realize that his legs started to tighten up as he got more and more overwhelmed by her problems, thinking, how can I help this woman? He lost his balance and he fell out of his chair right across from her in the counseling. She burst into laughter. And then she said, I feel better already. (laughs) He thinks, great. I have a Ph.D. and what helped her is I fell out of my chair and she says she's been helped. But sometimes people have this this theoretical knowledge of theology, of psychology, of different things. But when it comes to the practical how-to of guiding someone to victory, it's kind of vague, it's kind of nebulous. Well, I mentioned this morning that I was raised up north and moved to Georgia. I went to uh, Florida Bible College for a year and then joined a Christian music group. I play trumpet. Pastor David, do you think you got a place for me and maybe brass in, in the praise team. But anyway, for, uh, for two years, I traveled in a Christian music group, had a wonderful time in the U.S., Canada, and Europe in the internationals. Uh, and during that time, God really did a deeper work in my life. I read a book called Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret, which describes how the Galatians 2.20 message went from head to heart. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but who lives in me. Christ lives in me and the life which I now live. In this flesh, this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so God planted that seed in my heart. But after I left that group, uh, I went to Northeastern Bible College, then Biblical Seminary. My wife and I moved to uh, Montreal, Quebec, where I was an associate pastor. And during that time, I went to Indonesia with uh, one of our missionaries. And the missionary talked about what it was like to go to Indonesia as a pioneer missionary and working with this uh, primitive tribe of headhunters, which for some reason he found stressful. <clears throat> but as he worked with them, he came to the point of coming to the end of his own resources. And the message that we're going to be going through in this conference, God used to bring him a new sense of power and freedom and encouragement that really revolutionized his ministry. So when I was with him in 1985, he was describing the victory that he was still living in and sharing as we did this mission trip together. Well, I came across a book called Handbook to Happiness, which is on our literature table there by Charles Solomon, who's from East Tennessee. And as I read through that book as a, as a pastor in Montreal, I found a methodology that was illustrated and practical and transferable. And the very first time I shared this message using that approach, uh, in one session, the counselee said, I see my problem and I can see that Christ is my answer. She, she had a breakthrough the very first session. I called my father in Atlanta, Georgia, and I told him about the book and how it was helpful. He said, that's the one by Charles Solomon, right? I said, yeah. He said, Chuck and Sue Solomon are friends of ours. They've been in our home. He said, in Atlanta, you know these folks that wrote, read this, uh, wrote this book? He said, yeah. So um, that's how I first became acquainted with Grace Fellowship International. My father got the training in Atlanta back in the 80s. And one thing led to another, as, as Glenn and I mentioned back in 1996 and after that. These precious promises are about how God wants to connect his provision of the victorious life with a, a practical step-by-step people-helping process. Are you with me so far? Okay, precious promises. The next one I'd like you to look at is Romans chapter 8. I think if I mentioned the reference Romans 8.28, most of you would recognize, oh, that's the one that says, God causes a few things to work. Oh, that's all things. I would say, yeah. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Not that all things are good. 
God is not the author of sin. But God mysteriously, providentially overrules whatever happens in our lives. That if we yield and trust him, he's able to to overrule that for our ultimate well-being. Isn't that amazing? Now, if you go down the passage, we don't have time for a verse-by-verse study, but notice with me verse 31, Romans 8, 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Isn't that awesome? If God loved you enough uh, to so much that he gave his son to redeem you, can't you be confident that he would also want to give you everything you need to navigate the problems of life and be a victorious Christian? Friends, he's not holding out on us. He is for us, not against us. And he wants us to tap into the treasure chest of Christ in us, the hope of glory. So these are some precious promises that show us that even this theme, the victorious Christian life, is not just wishful thinking, but it's a biblical provision that you and I can tap into more and more. The next verse uh, that I jotted down for your notes is 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And here we have this victory theme really come out uh, very clearly. 2 Corinthians 2. And I just love how this verse kind of describes in kind of a, you get the idea of a, a pageantry, a, a victorious parade that's described here. 2 Corinthians 2.14. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Isn't that wonderful? The imagery is of a victorious general coming in after defeating the enemy army. And the defeated army is in, is in uh, chains behind the victorious army. And then the fragrance of the parade reminds them of the victory that has been won. God says, friends, that he wants you and I to, to march forward in that victorious procession. Not that you and I have to earn the victory. Christ has already won the victory. And he wants us to tap into it. How does that sound? He is more than a conqueror. And he invites us to be more than a conqueror through him who loves us. That's back in Romans chapter 8. That boggles my mind. I mean, it's one thing to be a survivor, right? Like the TV show, to be a survivor. But God has something better for us than just being a survivor. It's good to be an overcomer. It's great to to have not only getting through the problem, but come through it with some wisdom, some benefit. But God offers something even better. It says that we are more than a conqueror. How can you be more than a conqueror? A conqueror is someone who is not only uh, a survivor, not only someone who is an overcomer, but someone who is able to overcome in such a way that they can share with others the victory and the lessons that God has shared and accomplished in their life. There's a verse like that in 2 Corinthians where it says that when you and I go through difficult times of grief and, and affliction, God comforts us. Remember that passage? Then it says we are to comfort others with the comfort we receive. He's the Father of all mercies. He's the God of all comfort. So as we kind of lay a foundation for our series, we're saying that there are precious promises that you and I need to claim and to believe because God is a God who's absolutely trustworthy. Amen? He's absolutely trustworthy. Our next stop in our uh, walk through the sacred pages tonight is uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So 
if you could turn over there with me. First Thessalonians 5. What I'd like to draw to your attention at this point is that this series we're seeking to convey what I'll call a grace paradigm. You recognize that that term paradigm is the idea of a viewpoint, a perspective. And God wants us to have a, a grace perspective on the Christian life. You know, there are many people who might know the Bible from Genesis to maps, but have a works paradigm where they, every time they read the Bible, they'll see a verse and they'll think, okay, I have to do that better than I'm doing. And it's all works, works, effort, effort, try harder. Like the old advertisement, you know, we try harder. But, you know, God has a different perspective for us. And that perspective I like to just illustrate in this passage. First Thessalonians 5, we'll start at verse 16. And here you'll notice this series of uh, very clear guidelines. Rejoice always. Could you repeat with me? Rejoice always. I'll say it first, then you repeat after me. Pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. I'm reading from the New King James Version. Uh, The next one is, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. That's quite a list, isn't it? Man, rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing and everything give thanks. Even those three are quite a challenge. So by the time you get to the end of this list, you think, oh man, I can never score well on this scorecard. There's just too much to do. But now notice how our paradigm starts to shift when the next verse talks about how God designed you and me, spirit, soul, and body. God wants to give you the victory to rejoice evermore, to pray without ceasing, to have an attitude of to be online with God in prayer all the time. But it's going to come from the inside out. It's not going to be something you achieve by self-effort. It's going to come from your spirit, through your soul, through your body. Track with me verse 23 where it says, and I'll just read it for you. You don't have to repeat. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Notice the three dimensions here. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So your human spirit is the innermost part of you, the seat of your conscience and communion, intuition. The soul is the seat of your mind, will, and emotions. And the body, of course, is your earth suit that you you wear. And I'm glad you brought it here tonight. So your body contains your soul and your soul contains your spirit. When you're born again, it's your spirit that's born again. And then God begins the restoration project of restoring your mind, healing your emotions, conforming your will to his will. And then someday we'll get a glorified body to go along with it. Amen? That'll be nice. Now, notice the next verse. Here's where we get the grace paradigm. Verse 24 says, He who calls you is faithful who also will do it. Let me say that once more. He who calls you, that's God, is faithful. He will do it. Do what? Do everything that we've just listed. He will live his life in you and through you instead of you as you choose to yield him and trust him. How's that sound? 
So it's not us trying to measure up and trying to keep all the plates spinning. It's saying, God, as you live your life through me, it's going to be a rejoicing life. It's going to be a praying life. It's going to be a thankful life. So really, God's commands are actually descriptions of what it looks like when Christ bears his fruit through our lives. Imagine um, what it was like to live in the days of Copernicus, where everyone thought that the earth was the center of the solar system. And that was just their paradigm. And then he starts talking about the sun being the center of the solar system. And what a paradigm shift that was. He was considered a heretic at first, right? Finally, science caught up and realized that it's true that the sun doesn't go around the earth, but the earth and the planets go around the sun. It was a paradigm shift. God wants us to have that shift of perspective. And if you're here tonight and you've thought the Christian life, even though you've been, you know, Scripture says otherwise and you hear it from the pulpit, otherwise you may still have that, that, that tendency to think of, i got to do it myself. Hopefully, God, you'll help me out. Okay? That's a works perspective. That's a self-effort paradigm. And God says, give up on that. That's not the victorious Christian life. That's Romans chapter 7 where Paul says, what I don't want to do, oh, I end up doing. Right? What I want to do, I end up not doing. Oh, wretched man that I am. Like, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's Romans 7. And Romans 7 is, if I'm trying to live the Christian life by external rules on my own strength, I end up miserable. Does that sound familiar? I mean, that's, that is very typical. And Paul says, that is par for the course. Until we get to chapter 8, where it's always darkest before the dawn, when we give up on self-effort, then chapter 8 says, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Can I have an Amen. No condemnation, like we said this morning. Lay that guilt behind us because Calvary covers it all. So now we can have a a grace paradigm, a grace perspective. Let me think of an illustration. Let's say say you were given a painting, and it was uh, the sun setting over a a beautiful scene over the ocean, and and you're told that the artist painted this off off the coast of Southern California. So you can just picture the sun going down over the Pacific Ocean and someone gives you this painting and you have it on your wall and and for 10, 20 years, you've just always admired that painting. And just imagine that the artist visits your home, sees the painting and starts talking about what it was like to paint paint that beautiful image. And then he says, I remember when I painted that off the coast of South Carolina. South Carolina? Yeah, that's where I painted it, not Southern California. You realize, wait a minute, that's not a sunset, it's a what? It's a sunrise. Same picture, different perspective, right? Because now you realize it's, if it was off the coast of South Carolina, it's over the Atlantic Ocean, the sun's coming up, it's not going down. God wants us to have a shift of perspective, and 1 Thessalonians 5:24 nails it. He who calls you is faithful, who also will... We'll do it. He will do it in us and through us. This morning, we learned a little um, three-phrase gesture that some of you have probably been trying to remember this afternoon. Let's try to remember it once more. The, the summary is that Jesus gave his life for us, that he might give his life to us, that he might live his life through us. And we, we used say do this with me, if you remember. We made a sign like this, and we said, Jesus gave his life for us. That's the cross, right? That he might give his life to us. We put our hands like this, like we're being given a gift. 
he might give his life to us. And then we said that he might live his life and we put our hands out like this through us. So say it with me. Jesus gave his life for us that he might give his life to us that he might live his life through us. That's the grace paradigm. And friends, as we go through this teaching in the next number of weeks, we want to just clarify this grace perspective. And because many of the people that we're going to be helping are going to maybe be born again, but are laid down by failure and guilt and frustration because they think the Christian life is about trying harder. And we have some good news for them to say, guess what? The same Jesus who came to die for us is the one who brought us into union with himself that he might live his life through us. Not only to give us abundant life, rather, not only give us life, but life more abundantly. Amen? All right, the next part of our outline, I like to talk about Christ's mission. There's something about the calendar flipping over to 2016 that invites us to do some, what should we call it, some evaluation. Like, how was 2015? Did I achieve my goals, what went well, what didn't go so well. And here we have a new slate, so to speak, 2016. What, you know, what's God's purpose for me? I really think it's helpful sometimes to just take a step back and get the big, big, big picture. What is God's mission for us? The Westminster Shorter Catechism put it this way, that the chief end of man is to enjoy God and glorify him forever. That's why we're created, to glorify God. Well, if you turn with me to Luke chapter 4, we're going to see um, a mission statement of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is very profound. And you recall that in Luke chapter 4, the Lord Jesus is back in Nazareth where he was raised. And the folks that knew uh, Joseph and Mary and his half-siblings had a prejudice against him, and he recognized that, so he challenged them um, in this passage. But what he does is he actually takes the scroll of Isaiah... And it's turned to a certain passage that predicted his own life and ministry. And he quotes from the scroll this way in Luke chapter 4. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Let me just stop there. The Lord Jesus' personal name is Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. God is Savior. His title Christ is from the Hebrew word Mashiach, anointed one, right? Messiah means anointed one. Christos, or Christ, is the Greek translation of Messiah. So Messiah is the Hebrew term, anointed one. Christ is the New Testament term, anointed one. Same title, different language. So Jesus is the anointed one. In the Old Testament, they anointed prophets and priests and kings. Jesus is the ultimate Messiah because he is the prophet, the priest, the king, par excellence. Amen? And so he says, the Spirit of the Lord has, what? Anointed me. And now he talks about his ministry and what a profound description this is. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Wow. Isn't that, isn't that wonderful? As you read the Gospels, you can see each one of those aspects of his mission statement fulfilled in different ways in his life and ministry. Now, 
what we are studying in this series is about how these same kinds of ministry can be and should be fulfilled through you and through me because Jesus still wants to heal broken hearts today. Amen? Are people in need of the healing of a broken heart through, through the, the pain of divorce or grief or personal failure or disillusionment? Hearts are broken. They need to be healed. Christ wants to heal those broken hearts. Are people today bound? Do people need to be set free? There are addictions. There are all kinds of things that keep us in bondage. And Christ is the bondage breaker. He still wants to do each one of these things today. He wants us to be preaching the gospel of the victorious life. Well, I'd like for you to link that verse with another verse, which um, I think is in your notes as well, John twenty twenty one. And that's where the Lord Jesus says, As the Father has sent me, you know the rest of it? Even so, I send you. He's talking to the apostles. As the Father has sent me, even so send I you. Now, how do we connect this verse from Luke to that concept? What I'd like to to convey tonight is, just as Jesus was sent to heal the brokenhearted and set at liberty those who are captive and all those wonderful things. He has sent you and me as those who are extensions of his life to continue to exhibit that ministry in 2016 in East Tennessee or wherever we are. We are his hands. We are his feet. We are his mouthpiece. The same Jesus, but although now he is glorified in heaven, he lives in you and me by the Holy Spirit. Amen. If we're truly born again. And so he's continuing that ministry through us today. But friends, we can't do it in our own strength, right? No matter how hard we try, we just can't. But if Christ does it through us, we can expect the same kind of breakthroughs, victories, healings, freedoms, because it's the same Jesus, it's the same truth, it's the same Spirit of God. And what a joy it is to see God work that way. I remember a man came for counseling years ago, that had a a Coke addiction. I don't mean the soft drink. Um, And it was kind of expensive. And as he discovered that his root problem wasn't the cocaine, but it was really him living out of his own resources, and the cocaine was just the, the symptom of that, he discovered that if Christ lived his life in him and through him, that Jesus was not addicted to drugs, so Christ could demonstrate that victory. And he did receive that victory. And as he went through the material that we're going to be sharing with you in these next weeks, he discovered that in, he put his hand right here in the center as to represent C. We're going to go through that diagram later. He said, as long as I focus on Christ as my source of living, then I'm free from that habit one day at a time. So this approach is not just discipleship, it's discipleship counseling. It's not just evangelism of those who are lost, but it's evangelism to the saved. It's not only about life, but it's life more abundantly and is very relevant. So as the Father has sent Christ, he has sent you and me as well. Amen? Does that sound relevant tonight? So glad you're here to invest in this equipping process. By the way, I really um, appreciate the fact that Pastor Chuck and the team call your evening sessions on Sunday nights the equip hour or the equip session. For extra credit, do you know what verse that's based on? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12. In case you, you're asked, you know, to, uh, if you're on Jeopardy or something, you can know that. But Ephesians 4, 12 says that 
The risen Christ has given gifts, and it says the gifts are given to equip, there's our word, to equip the saints, that's you, you're set apart for God, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Now, often we think of ministry, we think of just the people who are up here on the platform or missionaries or people in full-time vocational Christian work. But friends, each one of us are in the ministry, right? God has a role for you in your particular situation, in your family, in your neighborhood, in your sphere of influence where Christ wants to live his life in you and through you in a way that no one else can. A ministry of letting his light shine through your good works, through your love, through your prayers, through your witness of the gospel of salvation and the gospel of abundant living. So in our notes here, we're going to say that this model of of discipleship counseling has a few distinctives that I think you'll appreciate. The first is that it's Christ-centered. Is that up there as well? Okay, so this counseling model is Christ-centered. You know, it's possible to have an approach to biblical counseling that's biblical, but not necessarily Christ-centered. For example, someone comes and, and they'll, let's just have an imaginary counseling session, all right? The fellow comes in, he says, John, my problem is that I have an anger. I have an anger problem. Okay, well, tell me about it. Well, I get, I get involved in traffic and I lay on the horn and I shake my fist and I say things I shouldn't. I said, okay, so you got an anger problem? Okay, turn to Ephesians 4. Don't be angry. Okay, God bless you. <laughs> well, I took care of that one. <laughs> well, that would be biblical, but it wouldn't necessarily be Christ-centered because the person could take that as a law saying, okay, I'm going to try to not be angry. Technically, the verse says be angry, but don't sin. And if we take biblical wisdom and try to apply it in our own strength, it can be biblical. Are you with me? But maybe not be Christ-centered. This morning, we were learning about how Christ wants to live in us and through us. And so really, the paradigm is that whatever problem we need to solve is not about us trying harder, but it's tapping in to the strength of Christ's indwelling presence in our lives. So this approach that we're going to endeavor to discuss and to share over these next weeks, it's all about Jesus. It's about Jesus as our Savior, because let's say that person with the anger problem is not born again. What's his greatest need? To not be as angry or to get saved? It's obvious, right? To have an eternal destiny change is more important than having a longer fuse. So we want to take the opportunity of helping him resolve his anger by showing him that it stems from a root spiritual vacuum and that Jesus can fill his heart and give him the grace to have long-suffering and patience, right? So we'll use that opportunity to show him Christ as the Lamb of God. That same person can come to you, I have an anger problem, and we can give him an answer. But if it's Christ-centered, we want to show him that Christ not only can be his Lamb, the Lamb of God who saves him, but his Lord. Are there areas of his life that he needs to yield to the Lord? Because we're going to see a couple weeks from now, Uh, That's really uh, the main topic of the evening is going to be surrender and how that resolves hostility. He's going to need to understand that as he yields to Christ as Lord at a deeper, more wholehearted way, that's going to deal with the very root cause of frustration and hostility and anger. Stay tuned a couple weeks from now. 
if he has surrendered to Christ, we want him to discover the message of union with Christ, to know that Christ is not only our lamb and our Lord, but our very life, the Galatians 2.20 message. So we'll use the opportunity of this counseling, this people-helping process, for him to know Christ as his lamb, as his Lord, and as his life. See, it's a Christ-centered process. All the problems and issues that we are going to deal with in our own life or we're going to help someone else resolve are going to all navigate back to a deeper appropriation of the sufficiency of Christ. How does that sound? Doesn't Colossians say that Christ should have preeminence in everything? Remember that verse? Because he is our creator, our redeemer. He should have first place. So let me ask you this question. Shouldn't he have first place in discipleship? Shouldn't he have first place in counseling? Not just to be biblical, like using the Bible as a rule book. Stop it. It may be biblical, but it's not the whole counsel of God, right? It needs to be Christ-centered. The next thing I'd like to bring to your attention is that it's cross-oriented. Cross-oriented. This theme is going to be traced right through our seminar because we believe that the cross is a theme that is very relevant to our spiritual journey and to the discoveries that Christ wants us to make. Now, as you drive through East Tennessee, sometimes you'll see a big cross like in Pigeon Forge. Um, Sometimes you'll see three crosses. And if you are biblically literate, it may remind you of Christ and then the thief on the cross on each side. But we're going to see that the cross means more than Christ's death for us. There's the cross of Christ's death for us. There's the cross of our decision to be a living sacrifice. There's also the cross of our co-death and co-resurrection with Christ. And there's a cross of Christ's victory over Satan that you and I can tap into. So the theme of the cross actually is woven right through this whole counseling process. So it's cross-oriented. Our text this morning was 1 Corinthians 1, and it says that the preaching of Christ and the cross is the power and wisdom of God. I think that's a good reason why we need to apply the message of the cross. It is the power and wisdom of God. We've seen that in so many cases over the years in the United States and other countries where the person with their problems come and discover that if it's Christ-centered and cross-oriented, that in a relatively short period of time, sometimes just one or two counseling sessions, there can be transformational change because it's about a paradigm shift and it's about tapping into the resources of God himself to do what only he can do. Amen? Third thing about it is that it's Bible-based. We're very unapologetic that God's word is sufficient as a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. And uh, if you if you like to take notes, you can jot down here's Second um, Timothy three sixteen. Second Timothy three sixteen, where it says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That a the man or the woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So God's word is our our source of truth, our source of guidance. It is the GPS, God's positioning system. It's the GPS to navigate whatever issues we're dealing with. So it is our authority. And so we're going to be digging into the word of God week by week. But it's also directed by the Holy Spirit. It's really exciting when you're involved in the people-helping process in a way that's, that's Christ-centered and cross-oriented and biblical. When you discover that the Holy Spirit actually wants to be the counselor and to use you as his assistant 
And so sometimes we have counseling situations like multiple personality disorder, and you think, I'm not an expert on this. You don't have to be. The Holy Spirit knows all about it. And as you love that person and whisper a prayer and are available, God can take things that he's taught you and lead them in a heart-focused process where whatever cluster of symptoms they have can, can be resolved by the power of the Holy Spirit. A woman came for counseling years ago, and she had multiple personality disorder. She would have times where just chunks of time would disappear. She would open the trunk of her car, and it would, be, uh, it would have bags of merchandise with the receipts and everything with her name on it. She had no recollection of, um, of the experiences. She uh, lost her job, and she was actually living in a homeless shelter, and all of her possessions were in her car, including her two cats. Trouble was, she was allergic to cats. <clears throat> and uh, so anyway, she, she was uh, at the vet one day, and she was so heartbroken over the loss of her job, the loss of her home, and uh, years of disappointment that she, she was crying. And the nurse, being a Christian, noticed her being upset and asked if she could encourage her. And, and uh, this gal started talking about her problem. She said, why don't, you, why don't you have a session with one of our pastors? He, I think he could offer you some encouragement. So she went to a church uh, north of Knoxville that uses this counseling model. And she talked to one of the pastors and he encouraged her. He gave her one of the pieces of literature that was over there in the book table. And said, why don't you go to our friends at Grace Fellowship? So when she came in, she started to share uh, her story. And her story was one um, which helped understand why she had had such severe symptoms. She was raised in a home that um, was very hypocritical because on the outside they were involved in a legalistic sectarian church, but on the inside she was a victim of incest as her father committed sexual abuse against her. So on the one hand, there was shame due to what was happening in the home, but all these religious expectations on the outside. And so this guild didn't have anywhere to go, and so her, her psyche started to fracture. She actually persevered and went on to Bible college, got a degree, was involved uh, working as a college graduate until uh, a crisis uh, precipitated her losing her job. Well, for a 10-year period, she tried to take her life many times. She was in various mental institutions. And fast forward then to uh, her desperation as a homeless person in East Tennessee. And as we walk through this process that we're going to be explaining on these Sunday nights here at Chilhowee Hills Baptist Church, God showed her that her root problem was not her memories. It wasn't uh, being a victim. It wasn't uh, the mental and emotional symptoms, but her root problem was that she needed a new identity, not as a victim, but as a victor. And as we walked her through the message of union with Christ, God revealed to her that she could live out of a victor identity instead of a victim identity. And as the truth started to go from head to heart, she describes how the different sectors of her mind started to process the truth And as she appropriated Christ as her life, God started to heal her until her fractured personality came back together. And she was able to return to the workforce and learn this message and share it with others. So God is able to heal the brokenhearted literally by the power of the cross, by using his word, by using people who are not necessarily experts, but just vessels in God's hands to point out that he is a God of love, a God of redemption, a God of healing. And there are people in this community that are desperate 
for the message that we're going to be delving into, which I know is preached from the pulpit here, but we're hopefully going to give you some tools to, uh, to learn how to use so that this message can be communicated in a simplified, clarified, illustrated manner. How does that sound? We together so far? All right, let's take a look at an overview <clears throat> to see where we're headed in the next few weeks. Here are some, um, a summary of our, our nine topics. Tonight is an introduction. Next week, we want to talk about diag- diagnosing our disappointments. Have you ever been disappointed? <laughs> All of us have been. See, God created us with ultimate needs, like the need for love, the need for acceptance, the need for security and significance. If that sounds familiar, would you raise your hand? <laughs> yeah, that's what we need, right? But because you and I are born outside of Eden, and I think Knoxville qualifies for outside of Eden, right? Wherever you were raised, we were not raised in an environment where those needs were met the way they were originally designed to be met, through walking with God in the cool of the day. So we've experienced rejection, right? Disappointment in various ways. Sometimes it's very intense, like the counseling I just alluded to. Sometimes it's more mild. But whatever disappointments you've experienced, the older you get, the more they tend to accumulate until you feel like you're just getting kind of buried under them. And often when people come for counseling, it's because something just tipped the scale where they just feel overwhelmed. You know what's really fascinating? Is that the more desperate we are, the closer we are to God's solution. Because God wants us to realize that the answer is not a new set of techniques. It's a a more intimate relationship with a person. A person who is in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're going to diagnose our disappointments and define them and illustrate them in a way that I hope will be helpful to you. A pastor, a couple of pastors came for lunch with me in December in Pigeon Forge, where our Grace Fellowship office is located. And one of them mentioned watching the conference DVDs. And he said, when I was watching the first session, and that was what we're going to talk about next week, he said, all of a sudden I'm starting to see things about myself and about my wife and about my family and explaining this is why we act this way and this is why we respond this way. Not an excuse, but an insight as to why we tend to have the emotional and relational and mental issues we have. He said it was really helpful and that gave him it whet his appetite to go deeper into what God's solution is and I hope that'll be our case next week so uh, we're going to see that the only way we can find fulfillment is to get back to God's original intention of finding life more abundantly in the Lord Jesus Christ so that's next week Lord willing and then we're going to see number three the topic of total commitment Romans 12 1 and 2 is a checkpoint in our spiritual journey and that's the verse that, uh, why don't you turn there with me if you would. Romans 12, 1 and 2 definitely deserves to be memorized because it is one of the checkpoints in, in the course that we're going to be going through. First thing I want you to notice about Romans 12, verse 1, is it's written to believers. I urge you therefore, brethren, and I think we can put sister in there too. So I urge you therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, by his amazing grace to do what? To present your bodies a, what kind of sacrifice? A living sacrifice. You think, wow, John, that's kind of radical. It sure is. It's also God's remedy for whatever symptoms are showing up because we're not living this way. Present ourselves as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God. It's our reasonable service. Think reasonable? Sounds kind of radical. Sounds extreme. It is extreme. 
but it's reasonable because if Jesus, God's Son, left the glory of heaven to live a perfect life and go to the cross for you and me to redeem us and give us the gift of eternal life, amen? Isn't it reasonable for you and me who have been redeemed to say, Lord, thank you. I want your will, whatever that is. I give you permission, quote unquote, permission to do whatever you want to do in me and through me. That's what God calls each of us to. But most of us haven't really come to sign on the dotted line on Romans 12, 1 and 2. Verse 2, though, sweetens the deal. It says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And these nine weeks are going to be definitely focused on transformation as we learn more and more about this journey and how to share it. And then it says that God's will for you gives us three adjectives. It's good, it's acceptable, it's perfect. So this evening, can I ask you a question? If God's will for your life is good, if it's acceptable, if it's perfect, you think it's a good deal to say yes to God? It really is. Because He is for you. He is the God of love. Someone said, God's will is what you would want if you knew all the information that God knows. It is His best intention for you, but it requires us to yield to Him. So... Uh, the third session will be on total commitment. And actually, it's going to be a bit different in a couple ways. Uh, one reason is because I'll be on a mission trip over to the Middle East, and I appreciate prayer for that. Uh, I'll tell you more about that. Um, so Brother Hands will facilitate, but we're actually going to show you a movie uh, of a, a missionary telling a very funny but very profound story called The Pineapple Story to illustrate the Romans 12, 1 and 2 teachings. So Hans will walk through again some of our material in your notebook about total commitment and then show you, Lord willing, that, that film. I think that'll be very, really special. Have you yielded? It says in our notes here, have you yielded your relationships and surrendered your rights to God so that he can be your all in all? What a profound challenge and question for each one of us. The fourth session, we'll call that the self-life or the Christ life. I don't know about you, but I like to simplify things, right? The simpler, the better. And we're going to see that, that um, secular psychology uses a thick book called the DSMV, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. And it's about this thick. And for them to bill insurance companies, they have to identify the particular symptom and ism and then uh, code it. But we're going to see that it's amazing how such a wide spectrum of problems if it's not biologically based, can be traced back to what we'll just summarize as the self-life. We've seen people set free from chronic depression, anxiety, addictions. We've seen marriages healed and restored, all when people realize that the root problem is self and that the ultimate answer is Christ as our life. So we're going to see some very significant teaching about the issue of the self-life to the Christ life. And then number five, our union with Christ. This is really the crux of the whole seminar is to walk through in more detail what we touched on this morning to show that Galatians 2.20 is not just a, uh, an abstract verse where Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's meant to be testimonial. Paul is saying, I. He had this experience and you and I need to have it. And it's true of us, but it may not be true in our daily experience. We're going to unpack that and explain it in more detail and show you a tool that you can use to illustrate it. Dr. Salman and I were in Bucharest, Romania, and we taught through this part of the conference. And a man came up to us afterward and he said, you know, I just read a book 
by Watchman Nee called The Spiritual Man. It's about this thick. He said, when I heard this teaching illustrated, now I know what Watchman Nee was talking about. It's something about the way it can be explained and illustrated that can take some profound theology and put it into shoe leather and make it very relevant to solving our problems. So that's our fifth session is about our union with Christ and how to to tap into what Romans uh, 6, 7, and 8 is, is talking about. And then number six, how to appropriate your new identity. Each of us are living out of a sense of an identity. But we've discovered in counseling that we tend to base our actions and reactions, our choices, our behavior, on how we perceive ourselves. If we think that I am worthless, then that tends to affect how we treat other people and how we look at life. If I think I am a failure, see the I am in there, then it kind of sabotages my potential. When you realize that you're a new creation, that you're a son or daughter of God, and you appropriate that by faith, it has really significant power to give you a new perspective on how you see yourself and how you see others. So we'll delve into that in more detail. And then the daily cross, number seven. This teaching is, is often that paradigm shift that we talked about, but it's not just an experience to achieve, it's a relationship to maintain. So our Lord says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself or herself. Take up the cross how often? Daily. And follow me. It's a daily, not I, but Christ, abiding relationship. So I'll talk about the daily aspect of that. And then healing damaged emotions. Now, it's possible to have a spiritual breakthrough through this type of counseling and yet still have some lingering problems of inferiority or insecurity and things. And we're not saying that all those emotional problems evaporate instantly. Sometimes they do. But sometimes it's more of a gradual process of healing. And we'll show you how to apply God's word to allow that healing journey to progress so that you're not stuck in some of those hurt memories, but allow God to continue to heal those damaged emotions. There was a man who uh, had a particular fear, and it was a fear of flying. But it usually didn't bother him unless he got around an airplane. But the reason he wanted to get on an airplane was he lived in California, but all of his relatives lived in the Netherlands. They didn't build the bridge over the Atlantic yet, so he was thinking, all right, I've got to fly over. One time he was really determined to, to fly over there, and, and uh, he checked into the flight. Luggage went on the plane. He was start, starting to go into the plane, and he turned around. He bolted. He just couldn't force himself to get on the plane. Finally, he determined he had to get counseling because he couldn't be held back by these fears any longer. Well, he drove out to, to Denver, Colorado, and he had some sessions with Dr. Solomon, who pioneered this approach to counseling. And he had such a vivid encounter with his union with Christ that his chronic fear of flying just evaporated because it was linked to the self-life. And so we had his spiritual breakthrough. The fear evaporated. So he said he had so much freedom that when he flew back to California, he said to Dr. Solomon, I could have flown on the wing of the airplane. <laughs> He has so much freedom. So we see that kind of transformational change. But sometimes there can be some lingering emotional issues. And we're not saying that automatically they're all healed instantly. Sometimes it's a more gradual process. And we'll explain how to to, uh, allow that process to continue in our healing journey. And then we'll conclude with um, the Egypt Egypt to Canaan picture, which is a fascinating picture of how Israel was in Egypt for those 400 years plus. Then they crossed the Red Sea. They were redeemed. 
But instead of um, verifying their covenant relationship with God at Sinai and then going right into Canaan, they got to the border of Canaan. And what happened? Due to unbelief and disobedience, they said, wall cities, giants, no way. And they refused to enter in. So for every day the spies checked out Canaan, there would be one year of wandering in the wilderness until the unbelieving generation died off. And finally, they got to the edge of the promised land 40 years later, and God instructed Joshua that they were to carry the Ark of the Covenant. And as the priest stepped into the Jordan River, God stopped the Jordan River upstream, just like he parted the Red Sea. So crossing the Red Sea is a picture of salvation, Crossing the Jordan River is a picture of identification. Canaan is not primarily a symbol of heaven. It's a symbol of the abundant life because there's still some Jerichos and giants to deal with, which we'll talk about. So that map, that that, um, pictorial journey of Egypt, wilderness, Canaan, will give you a handle and give you a a symbolic map that 1 Corinthians 10 describes, which I think you'll find very illustrative and very helpful. I know we have... And um, it's very, uh, very relevant in our people-helping journey. Okay? So uh, let me just pause at this point. I know I've been going a mile a minute here. Are there some uh, issues you'd like me to backtrack and clarify? Some I to dot or T to cross in terms of where we're headed and that quick overview. So let me just... Do I need to restate something or clarify something? Um, We'll just pause for a minute, and I think I'll give my helpers um, a minute to set up the castle PowerPoint for me. So any question or comment? We talked about how Israel, when they crossed the Red Sea, that is a, it's real redemption history, but it's also illustrative of redemption. God redeemed them from Egypt. He parted the Red Sea. The, the Passover lamb is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, right, who is called the Lamb of God. So that's tremendously helpful. But then the wilderness is a picture of the, the, the self-life where we're saved from hell but not saved from self. We're stuck in Romans 7 trying to live the Christian life. So the wilderness wandering is a picture of the defeated Christian life. And then crossing the Jordan River is a picture of the Galatians 2.20 breakthrough where we believe that we are crucified and raised with Christ and we appropriate that. So when they carried the ark across, as they stepped into the Jordan River, God parted the Jordan River. He stopped the Jordan River upstream. By the way, he stopped the river at a town called Adam. A lot of interesting tidbits to explore. But he he split the Jordan River in a parallel way that he split the Red Sea. The Red Sea is a picture of being redeemed. And then crossing the Jordan River into Canaan is a picture of our identification with Christ. And Canaan is a picture of the abundant life. So we have some diagrams. We love diagrams. I'll confess that right up front. Um, but I hope we'll be, we'll be uh, illustrative to you. Okay? Anyone else? Do we got that castle, fellas? Okay. Uh, let's look at um, a tool. One of the fascinating things about this counseling approach is that it's, it's simply profound, but it's also profoundly simple. And one way to illustrate the the way is uh, profoundly simple is to share with you a tool that Dr. Solomon's son, Ron Solomon, developed called the Castle Tract. And uh, we start by reminding you, the next slide, uh, we're going to show you this next week, it'll be in your notebook, 
that this circle represents how God designed you. You see how your spirit relates to God, the soul relates to others, the body relates to your environment. And uh, plants have physical life, right, material. Uh, Animals, you'll notice if you have a dog or a cat, they have a mind, will, and emotions. But only human beings made in God's image have a human spirit. God is spirit. He made us in his image. So we have spirit, soul, and body. You remember that from 1 Thessalonians 5? May God sanctify you, spirit, soul, and body. So with that in mind, you notice the next, the next slide. The Christ-centered life is, is yielding in full surrender to Christ, realizing that Christ indwells us. And as Christ lives his life through us, he restores our soul and reveals the fruit of the Spirit and actually also can heal psychosomatic health problems, which we'll go through in more detail. And this S in the cross is a picture of the Galatians 2.20 disposition of not I, but Christ. Okay, so this is in your material that we'll, we'll provide for you next week. <clears throat> so now let's uh, go into the, the children's tract. And you start by going to this castle, and you'll talk to, uh, we'll say we're talking to Billy. And let's say that Billy is not obeying his parents, and he is pulling his sister's pigtails. Can't really blame him for that. No, I'm just kidding. Um, and he's uh, disobeying his, his uh, teachers at school and just, you know, acting up. And so um, Billy is brought to you for some Christian counseling. The first thing we want to do for Billy is to say, Billy, when you think of a castle, what do you think of? Well, you know, it's a big building. It's made out of these ancient stones. Maybe it's got a flag on top and maybe a moat around it. And so you talk about the castle Billy, we want you to think of the castle as your body, the outward part of what you can see. The next slide, though, shows us that a castle is where someone lives. And so as we go inside the castle, we see that this castle has two rooms. We'll call the, uh, the left room the soldier's quarters, and we'll call the right room the throne room. Now, when a person is unsaved, when they don't know God, The problem is not just that they're disobedient or angry or mean, but those are symptoms of the fact that the old me is on the throne. They need a new birth, don't they? The Bible says that we are the old person when we're born the first time. So here in this scenario, we see that on the throne room, that is our human spirit that's dead toward God. You with me so far? The throne room represents your human spirit which is dead toward God, so that's the old you. And then this side represents the soul that we looked at, which is, I'm sorry, this side, is the the mind, will, and emotions, right? So thinker, let's call them soldiers, okay? You've got the thinker soldier and the chooser soldier and the feeler soldier. So in Billy's case, if he doesn't know Jesus, the old me is on the throne, and so thinker is thinking thoughts that aren't true and... uh, Choose a soldier is doing his own thing and being rebellious and feel a soldier is angry and upset and fearful. And then the missions that go out of that castle are going to be troublesome and not loving. So rather than talking just about how to try to get thinker and chooser and feeler to behave themselves, what's the best way that we can help Billy? To show him how we can have a new king in his castle. And so we present to him the gospel, okay? So we'll go to the next slide. So this, this uh, represents presenting the gospel Uh, to Billy. We tell him that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that Billy, if you believe in Jesus, you will not perish but have everlasting life. 
So when Billy receives Jesus Christ, what happens? Well, in the throne room, we see that now Jesus becomes the king of this castle. So here on the right, you see that Jesus now is the king of this castle. This represents the new person, the person who's born again. And as Jesus lives through the believer, we see that thinker, chooser, feeler, as they are under the lordship of Christ, then we see that thinker is going to think truth because Jesus is the truth. And chooser is going to choose what's loving because God is love. Are you with me? And feeler is going to feel peace and and joy. Why? Because Jesus is our source of peace and joy. And the missions that these soldiers go on, the missions that go out from the castle are going to be loving and, and affirming of God's kingdom. So, Billy, will you receive Jesus Christ? Yes. Therefore, when you do, you've got a new king in your castle. You have a new identity, which is pictured with Jesus on the throne room. And notice that in the top of this diagram that this castle becomes a temple of God, an identity change. So since the Spirit of God now dwells in this castle, Jesus is on the throne, he is the king, then it's not just any ordinary castle, it is a temple of God. Billy becomes a child of God, he becomes a temple of God, he has a new identity, and we want to reveal that identity to him and help him to cooperate with Christ. Let's look at the next slide. In this slide, we're saying that it's possible for Billy, as a Christian, to uh, allow something to happen which is far too common. Now, there's a door between the throne room, which again represents our human spirit that relates to God, and the soldier's quarters, which, remember, is uh, symbolic of your soul, your mind, will, and emotions. There's a, a door between the spirit and soul, between the throne room and the soldier's quarters. There's a problem with that door. You know what the problem is? It's spring-loaded shut. It's so easy for that door to shut. Now, when that door shuts, it represents hindering the life of Jesus as he wants to express his life through us. It's the tendency for us to say, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to live by my own perspective instead of God's truth. Or I'm just going to do my own thing instead of yielding to God's will, or I'm just going to live out of those damaged emotions instead of letting Christ be my source of supply. So if we let that door of fellowship shut, it's what Ephesians 4 describes as grieving. Remember that verse? Grieving the Holy Spirit. It says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Verse Thessalonians 5 says, don't quench the Spirit. When the Holy Spirit is wanting you to do something, wanting you to love, wanting you to do good, good works, and you say, no, don't want to then we're quenching him. If we do something that violates our conscience and violates God's will, then we're grieving him because he is a God of love. He is a person. He can be grieved. So when the door of fellowship is allowed to close, it's a symbol of hindering the life of Christ being expressed through us. That happens, doesn't it? It happens with Billy. He's still, as a Christian, maybe he's still being angry and still disobeying his parents. So what does he need to do? He needs to repent of the sin, but also repent of the cause of it. Repent of letting that door of fellowship close. So what does Billy need to do? Open the door, right? Does this remind you of a verse in Revelation? (laughs) Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, what does he promise? I will come in and dwell with you. See, that's a fellowship verse. 
So Christ is knocking at our heart's door. He's in us as a believer. He's knocking at our heart's door. What do we need to do? We need to yield and welcome his presence. And as we do, then thinker will once again think according to God's truth. Chooser will once again cooperate with his wisdom and love. And feeler will experience the peace and joy that Jesus provides. So we help Billy to not only repent of when he sins, but get back to opening that door of fellowship and keeping it open by surrendering and trusting. In a nutshell, friends, we simply need to yield and trust. And as we do, King Jesus lives his life in us and through us. And there we have it right there. Jesus in the throne room, living his life through our mind, will, and emotions and the missions going out from our life being missions of love and kingdom advancement. Amen? So that's an example, just a quick run-through of one of our tools that we use in children's ministry. And um, I remember a young boy that came for counseling with his parents. His parents came first. They showed us a write-up from a, a prominent psychiatric hospital where this boy had a number of very severe problems. The parents learned about this counseling model first, and then the mother came with the boy for a couple of days. And I simply had the opportunity to listen to the boy's story and walk him through the very principles of our conference over these next weeks. And uh, he came to appropriate the message of this tract. He came to tear, he uh, tore down some strongholds that he allowed to, to pop up in his life due to some occult activities. You know, a lot of children's gaming today is just filled with occult, you know, beliefs and powers and things. So we cleared out some of that stuff. And we like to doodle and use diagrams. And at the end of his time with us, he actually went over to the whiteboard and said, could I try that? And he got the marker and he drew his own diagram, which is a really neat description of what God showed him during his time with us. So this is um, simply profound, but also profoundly simple. And as uh, if you invest in the notebook next week, we'll try to have enough copies next week. We want it to be like a toolkit that as we go through this, this teaching, that you will learn how to illustrate and clarify the message to help yourself, to help a friend, to help uh, someone in need to experience Christ as their lamb, salvation, their Lord for surrender, their life for fulfillment, their liberator from strongholds, their leader in their day-by-day guidance, and to have the privilege of helping people experience life and life more abundantly. Amen? So I trust that the notes for tonight will, will be an encouragement to you about God's precious promises, about our, our paradigm of grace, that God calls you and me into this mission of being an extension of his Ministry of healing the brokenhearted and setting at liberty those who are captive today. And, uh, and we look forward to these next weeks together. All right? Well, any, any other questions or comments on what we covered tonight? I'm just really excited that you're investing this time. It's a real privilege uh, for me to be with you during these weeks. And we're looking forward to what we're going to delve into together week by week. So anything you'd like me to comment on or maybe you have a a word of testimony or question tonight? Anybody? Anybody have a question or comment? Aren't you impressed I finished early? <coughs> that wasn't easy. <coughs> um, you have Awana clubs here, don't you? Is that right? Awana clubs? I mentioned this morning about how we tend to identify ourselves with relationships. You want to hear my story about Awana clubs? Humor me and say yes. 
Um, when I was in that Christian music group that I was talking about, we, uh, the guys in the group would take turns sleeping with the equipment so the equipment wouldn't be stolen. And so it was my turn to sleep with the equipment at Northside Gospel Center in Chicago. And so I had my sleeping bag, bag unrolled, you know, in the, the softest part of the church, which was the pastor's study. And so I'm waking up in the morning, and this elderly gentleman walks in, and it's Lance Latham, the founder of Awana Clubs. And that was the, his home church at that time. He was an elderly gentleman back in 1974. Um, and uh, he gave me some coaching on, on the little gospel message I gave the night before. It was a real privilege to, to meet him and then later to read his biography. But you remember what Awana stands for? 2 Timothy 2.15, approved workmen are not ashamed. So what we're going to be doing in these next weeks in the equip hour is to study, to roll up our sleeves, to dig into this message and this methodology because we want to be work folks. (laughs) We want to be equipped people who can rightly handle the word of truth to help others resolve their conflicts for the glory of God. Pastor Chuck. Closing comments or announcements. Thank you so much.